Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. Tommy Vitor. Today on the pod, we have the former head of the White House Office of Public Engagement and the longtime Obama political organizer, Johannes Abraham. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Iowa friend of the pod. Iowa friend of, from way back when. Way back. I wasn't even a friend of the pod then. <laughs> you weren't. I you was were, nothing. You were an enemy you of were the pod. A, <laughs> sworn enemy of the I pod. Was you were in opposition, opposition yep. to the and pod. And now look at me. Now look at you. Now you've uh, hosted a wildly successful show on Friday, Love It or Leave It. It's a juggernaut. It's a juggernaut. So everyone go subscribe. You can listen to Friday Night Show. You can wait for the second episode where we work out some of the kinks. <laughs> Whatever you'd like. <laughs> you also are going to want to make sure to subscribe to Pod Save the World, Tommy Vitor's juggernaut. Yeah, this week we're talking to Gail Smith about South Sudan. It'll be a lot less funny than Love It or Leave It. I promise you that. There is a horrible famine, <laughs> they go, but it's important okay. you should listen. <laughs> Love It couldn't even make a joke there. It's great. Yeah, this it's really is, this is the range of options Crooked Media offers you. Get used to it. And... Anna Marie Cox is with friends like these. On Friday, she talked to uh, Mythbusters guy. Oh, Adam Savage. Adam Savage. Myths busted. Myths, the myths were busted. And she talks about conspiracy theories. It's a great, timely episode. Go listen. Okay. Guys, it's a good day. It's a good day. I want to start with a quote from our good friend Paul Ryan. Mm -hmm. Obamacare is the law of the land. We're going to be living with it for the foreseeable future. Who would have thunk that that would be the quote that we'd be hearing from Paul Ryan. Trump care is dead. Obamacare is alive. It has survived the Tea Party. It survived two Supreme Court challenges. And now it has survived an attempt to kill it by a Republican president and a Republican Congress. Why? Well. <laughs> Does anyone want to take a stab at what happened? Why? Sure. <laughs> well, a long time ago, this group called Heritage was created. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, they didn't do the work. I mean... They, it is, is still it that they March. didn't do the work, or was anything was anything really possible here? I mean, uh, I, my view is that they, they they put themselves in a box because the uh, many Republican politicians, most Republican politicians, lied to voters about Obamacare from the inception. From yes. the beginning, they told everyone there would be it would be a government takeover. It would kill all these jobs. It would re- include death panels. Your grandparents would die. So that was the beginning, right? And then. What they decided to do when none of that stuff came true was they waited for every problem with the law, and then they tried to tell people that by repealing the law, that would they would take care of that problem. So were their premiums higher than they should have been? Yes. Were their deductibles too high? Yes. Were the copayments getting too high? Yes. But the problem is, Republicans said, if you elect us and we repeal this bill, then all that stuff will go away. That was a lie. For the vast majority, for like the last seven years, the problem with the Obama health care bill has been... Obama, not the health care bill, right? And, and there are some exceptions to that. There's some problems with the legislation as written that need to be updated and adjusted. But the proof point there is that they didn't develop an alternative in seven years. And then Paul Ryan, despite saying that Obama ran a secretive process, that they passed this thing in the dead of night, that they didn't have committee hearings, he took like a couple weeks and he presented them a bill without any options, without any process to have real debate or real amendments. He just said, hey, this is the thing you need to blindly vote for without a real CBO score, without any sense of like what it would do or hurt in their district. And it was a total flop. Yeah, it's the, the, yeah. The, the what they ended up with was just a very, very shitty version of Obamacare. We've talked about that before, but that was actually a, is a really surprising turn in this, right? After all these years of saying the Obamacare itself was a fundamentally flawed idea, 
he kind of re- kind of got himself stuck in his position of offering similar tax credits but worse, similar benefits but worse. Well, the the the, the central challenge for the Republicans is what they actually believe is that government should not guarantee the right to affordable medical care for people. That is the belief of most Republicans. There's some moderate Republicans still out there who believe that government should play just a very small role in helping people afford Medicare. But the Tea Party, most of the Republican conference right now, doesn't believe the government has a role. That's not what they argued. That's not what they ran on. That's not what they fought for, right? And so when it came time to put an alternative forward, because they know that most Americans, if they have problems with Obamacare, it's because Obamacare doesn't go far enough in helping people afford insurance. That's the key. And we should be a little bit more cynical about it, too, because... The whole, a lot of what the Republican critique of Obamacare is actually a critique of health insurance generally, which is people. There's a real disconnect between what people pay out of pocket, you know, what people pay for their health care, and the health care they want to receive. Everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants fantastic health care for as little money as possible. And the, as a country, we're going to pay all the health care bills, right? Whether it's the hospitals are going to pay it, or the taxpayers are going to pay it, or individuals are going to pay it, or businesses are going to pay it. We're all going to pay the bills, or people are just going to die without the treatment that they need, which is something that goes on anyway. Um, and Republicans have been sort of feeding this myth that there could be this free lunch, that we could lower deductibles and give you good insurance and everybody could have insurance and the government debt would go down and the government taxes would go down. And it just was never possible. There was a fundamental lie at the heart of everything that they were promising. Uh, yeah, I think there, there's a f- so the thought experiment is, could any bill have passed? Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I, th- I don't know that anything could have passed with only Republican votes. Right. right. Because you have the Freedom totally Caucus. Agree. The Freedom Caucus is already saying, let's pull back what are called essential health benefits, like mammograms, things like that. Let me keep going. And then you have then they're pushing to eliminate parts of the bill that required coverage for pre-existing conditions, kids staying on their coverage till they're 26, that that gets you to a place where moderates are just not going to be able to go along with this thing. So, okay, could Trump have passed something if he tried to do it with Democratic votes? Maybe, but I don't know that you could have called that a full repeal. You already would have been accused of breaking your big campaign promise. You're absolutely right. The only thing that Donald Trump could have passed with... De- so first of all, the only way something might have gotten out of the House is probably with Democratic votes. You might have been able to get the Freedom Caucus and the moderates to grant something if it wasn't quite as messy and you spent a long time. But probably you needed Democratic votes to get it out because those Freedom Caucus, the only people that were true to their beliefs in this whole thing were the Freedom Caucus because their belief is no, no, no government involvement in healthcare whatsoever. We don't want it. So they and wanted four people. And that, certainly, that, to, just to be fair to them too, like, and certainly the answer is not going to be some bastardized half government involvement that kind of creates these crazy risk right. rules. Like they're, they're like, so you're going to end up with subsidizing shitty insurance. Right. Like they're not going to be for that. So which Reasonable. So, they, so, so, therefore, you lost thirty or forty votes because you weren't going to do that. To get Democratic votes, you would have had to increase the subsidies. You'd have to give people more help for health care, and regular Republicans weren't going to go along with that. So, what really happened in this bill is every time Trump tried to make a concession and Ryan tried to make a concession to the Freedom Caucus, it pissed off more moderate Republicans. And here's the big thing. Why were the Republican, we call them moderates, they're really not moderates, but why were these other Republicans not okay with that? Because they lived, there was too many Republicans who live in blue districts who were were not just afraid of primaries for once, they were afraid of getting beaten in a general election. And the reason they were afraid of getting beaten in a general election is because of the town halls and because of the activism and because people showed up and people called and people went to those town halls and they scared the shit out of them. Because Paul Ryan with the bill that pulled at 17%. I mean, that didn't help either. But the, but the reason that he jammed them with that bill is for all the reasons we just said, like because they they tried to take away people's health care, well, yep. which is not what people voted for. People didn't vote for Donald Trump to get Paul Ryan's agenda. That is the truth. And at the root of it, right, this bill was a a giant tax cut, right, for the rich that then forced them to cut subsidies for everybody down the line. And 
nobody nobody wanted that first of all but also what's crazy is they created this process where they decided the only way they could do healthcare was to do it in like a month because mm-hmm. they had to get to tax reform and I, and i was actually thinking back to how Everyone was saying, how, oh, you know, there's been this, there was this recrimination, especially when it looked like Obamacare might not survive that, oh, did Obama make a mistake in pursuing this? Right, Chuck Schumer has said that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, But you go back and look, we passed the stimulus first. We did a big, important piece of legislation that was really important for the economy before we started this very long healthcare process. Putting healthcare at the very front of what they were doing and then saying it has to happen incredibly fast revi- you know <laughs> revamping a fifth of the american economy has to happen in a two week span it was crazy it was madness yeah well, can we make one important point which is the the new talking point is that obamacare is exploding and that's just factually not true once again the cbo <laughs> the cbo said that obamacare markets will remain stable over the long run if there are no significant changes so this was a tough year premiums went up significantly in some areas insurers pulled out of some areas but that is a far cry from what's called the death spiral where premiums go up to the point that only the sickest people buy them and the markets just implode. And, and I think like, that is a key point because uh, we reached this point, the Republicans reached this point of failure because they told lies to their voters about Obamacare. They continue to tell those lies. Paul Ryan is saying that it's in a death spiral. Donald Trump says it's imploding and exploding, which is, I, I didn't know that something like that is physically well, it's like, possible. Like, like, a, like, a, like, a, <laughs> like a supernova, right? It gets real small and it gets real big. <laughs> um, but what people I watched sh- some Cosmos last night. <laughs> what people should know is that it's not, it, exactly like you said, Tommy, it's not in a death spiral. Now, can Donald Trump on his own do damage to Obamacare? Yeah. Yes. Can I can I just offer one one other little thought experiment? Imagine if Trump said the Department of Homeland Security is a disaster, it's in a death spiral, <laughs> but I'm just gonna let it blow up. It's on the Democrats, right? Like that is insane. It's insane. It's insane that he thinks he can just pass the buck for that. So people are gonna die. Whatever. It's also, not like, my fault. Democrats. It's um there are problems with Obamacare. Like, there are problems with the pools. There are problems with uh, areas that only have one insurer at best. Um, but those are really solvable. Those are solvable problems. And and uh, it's a non sequitur to say. It's like, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of saying that, like, the plumbing in my house is broken, so let's burn this house to the ground. Well, so yeah. let's, let's talk about a few things that Trump can do to fuck up Obamacare and a few things um, that can be done to further solidify the program. To fuck it up, they can. Um, the administration has leeway to stop or reduce payments that help lower deductibles for low-income people. These are called cost-sharing payments that they give to insurance companies that the, that the administration has wide latitude to do. They can stop doing those payments. That would hurt people. Number two, they can stop enforcing the mandate, meaning they can. They can and if they so, if they don't get enough people, enough healthy young people to buy into the program, that starts making the pool sick, the, or the people who do have insurance sicker, and that costs more money for everyone. So. They they can stop doing that. And we already saw them try to do this at the beginning of the year. They can hurt enrollment efforts, right? We need more people to sign up so they can stop advertising yeah. and stuff like that. So there are three things they can do to hurt the program themselves. What can be done to help them? Help the program. Well, basically the opposite of what I just said. Right. <laughs> you can you can guarantee those payments continue, the low deductible ones. Oh, and also states can decide to expand Medicaid and take that yeah. and a lot of some states <clears throat> that hadn't expanded Medicaid just announced today they are going to start expanding Medicaid. Well, that's but, good. But also, I mean, Obama, uh, the, the, the HHS secretary, there were times where they called insurers and coaxed or begged or forced them to stay in markets or you know, mm-hmm. do the right thing. Price could do that. Tom Price, the HHS secretary, could do that. Perhaps Donald Trump brags about doing that every other day about keeping jobs here. How about 
Yelling at insurers. That pulls pretty well. Everyone hates insurers. How about the great negotiator? Making, <laughs> yeah. How about the art of the deal? Make a deal from insurers. I don't, think so, that, I don't think that's right. So what I don't you need to hear is, is when Donald negotiator. Trump says there's nothing you can do to help Obamacare because it's exploding, he is lying. He is a fucking lying. <laughs> and so is Paul Ryan. Again, and should, you should just, they should know that. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's frustrating demagoguery. that uh, It's just annoying to watch these factual inaccuracies get repeated ad nauseum. And once again, it just becomes a conventional wisdom. Right. And it becomes like, oh, Democrats and Republicans just can't meet on this. Well, no, they're lying. They've been lying for eight years. So let's just call it out. Yeah. Um, so what, anyone have some fi- there's a lot of recrimination stories about this. Does anyone have any uh, favorite tidbits from all the so, Cause I, I want to leave with all the drama because so often we think like it's all about the personalities and Ryan's negotiating skills and Trump's negotiating skills. And like I think we, we there's larger forces at play here, but there are still some really fun stories. Yeah, I mean, look, there was this, there was a Politico story that kind of walks through all the different people blaming all the other different people. And and actually, if you read that story, like some of the people that are getting blame, Ryan's Priebus, Paul Ryan, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner. The White House communications team, the White House political team, Donald Trump. Uh, maybe Donald Trump Jr. slipped in there at the end. I don't know. But uh, what's funny about that is like the answer is yes. Like you're all responsible. Like this was a incredibly bungled operation, right? Like it was a mistake in theory. It was a mistake in practice. It was poorly executed. Donald Trump did nothing. I love, you know, we keep coming back. Sean Spicer on Friday, like five seconds before the whole thing fell apart, was like, well, the one thing we can say is Donald Trump left it all on the field. Uh, did you? Yeah. Did you leave yeah. it all on the field? He didn't do anything. It was like, it was two weeks. He didn't even give a single speech about it. He doesn't know what's in the bill. He was in. Mar- he golfed ten times. <laughs> the amount of cognitive dissonance that the, the press corps affords Donald Trump is is sort of my favorite thing yes. overlaying all of this. For example, Trump says, "Hey, tune in to Judge Jeanine Pirro's show tonight." That has never happened in the history of Judge Jeanine Pirro's show. <laughs> if you want a fun Judge Jean Pirro moment, Google uh, Jean Pirro and page ten when she literally doesn't have the page of her announcement speech until her oh, Clinton. It's ran. one of the greater moments. But yeah. like, Trump says, "Tune in." Then she gives a six-minute rant saying Paul Ryan is at fault, he screwed Donald Trump, and he must resign. And then Trump staff is like, nah, he had no idea, never talked to her, nobody gave him a heads up. He just happened to tweet that. I mean, I think we learned a few things about (laughs) Donald Trump from this whole episode, Um, or some of us already knew this, but I think everyone learned it now. Uh, He doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care about health care. I've, I've not yet learned anything. Want, I'll let you know when I've learned something. He doesn't care about keeping any of the promises he made because he said, I want health insurance for everybody and I don't want to cut Medicaid. He didn't try to do either of those things. Uh, he gets bored. He quits easily. Uh, he's not willing to take on his own party, not willing to be bipartisan. Basically, the only thing he cared about this whole time was winning something. Right. I, I want to go back to the story Lovett raised because it, it's just the amount of infighting in that White House. I mean, there's a quote at the end that's like, you couldn't even believe the amount of infighting. Like, it sounds Sounds like a, a road rules real world challenge episode or something. But you know, my favorite is like there's equidotes like the the new Goldman Sachs people, Gary Cohn and Diana Powell, are hated by the old Goldman Sachs people, Steve Bannon, and like that's one power center. Jared Kushner, who went to Aspen for two days in the midst of the biggest legislative priority being on the floor and, and caving, is getting a lot of heat, deservedly so. By the, the way, only thing, the you only don't thing... go to skiing in the middle of the. The yeah, only big, big the only the person who left... big fight in the White House between the rich and the racists. <laughs> The thing I do feel bad for them about is like you have these people in the White House press office getting all this blame. And I've been in that seat where it's like all the policies are a disaster. Everyone is leaking. There's infighting. And everyone is like, well, if the press office could just clean this up, it's like. Most of the time, the press team is not responsible for bad leaks for the same reason that janitors don't throw shit all over the ground. Right. Your job is to clean it up. I will say this. I I am never one to give credit to these people and I'm never one to defend them. 
But the idea that the White House Communications Office is the reason the Trump administration is in this mess is ridiculous. Like, what are they supposed to do? Like, you can't like, I mean, barring better like VR technology that they can put over the heads of all Americans. Like, I'm not really quite sure what the communications office could do. They spent a month. They spent a month. Defending the attack that Obama illegally wiretapped the guy. Like, what else are these people supposed to do? Can't we, dress up a horse shit. It's my grandfather always used to say. <laughs> I think that um, they probably should get some kind of an intern or assistant for the vein that's popping out of Sean Spicer's head, though, because to manage that guy's incoming. Oh, we're doing this in the middle of his briefing. It's probably going to be a great briefing. Um, you know what, though? They're not great briefings anymore. They're just, they're they're pointless because it's just, he just gets up there and he goes, like, actually, things are great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 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 no, that's wrong, Glenn Thrush. You're being a child. <laughs> Carl, 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 John, Carl. Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan. So, uh, 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 I think that what you're saying is ridiculous. Obviously, when Devin Nunes came here, it was a coincidence. He just hopped the fence and did so, a briefing. Someone asked him if he was gonna, if, if Trump was going to pull the bill. He goes, ah, oh, you guys are so negative. Literally five minutes later, Trump pulled the bill. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, Washington's favorite story is a shakeup and a staffer getting let go or blamed or whatever. I, I wonder who the first to go is. Is it going to be Reince? Could it be, pre- I mean, like, uh, sounds like Reince. Or Reince. <laughs> sounds like the same guy. Or, or Sean. I mean, it, it's, it's Trump is going to have to make a move to reset this narrative, and like Six I don't know of what rights, it is. Half dozen of the previous. <laughs> the um, yeah, I I do really look. I said this during the campaign. And I still, in my heart, hope it is true that Ryan Priebus will have to leave politics in the middle of the night with what he can carry. I always think about that quote from and you. I, and I just... <laughs> Every time I read a right story. And, 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 it's, and it's gone on longer than I expected, obviously, but I still, I still have hope. I still have hope that that's what happens. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails. Or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Let's talk about what's next. We're all focused on what's next uh, on the Trump agenda here. What is next? Enough of feeling good. Enough of feeling good. Yeah, there's lots to do. Um, We should say that one more time. Victory for all the people who called and yeah. showed up again. I just want to emphasize Definitely. that point because there's so. I mean, Washington will continue to be focused on the Freedom Caucus and the in the politics between them and the Trump White House. Mm-hmm. But these moderate Republicans in these blue districts were scared. Right, they were scared because you called and you showed up, and like we can't forget that going forward. There was no way for the White House to buy off the Freedom Caucus because they knew they would lose too many of the scared moderate members who were getting and that pe- is getting, a di- getting and pe- 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 peppered with questions at these town halls. That is a dynamic yep. we can repeat in the fights to come. 
come. Right? Yeah. Except possibly the Gorsuch fight, <laughs> which we will start with. Um, Gorsuch, Gorsuch fight, man. That's a tough one. Uh, yeah. Has anyone learned? What have we learned about this guy from the hearings? It seems like not much. He's really good. I mean, right? Good like, at saying nothing. Because, well, he's not, he's but, good at but, not answering questions. But that is the coin of the realm. I mean, you, ever since uh, the Bork nomination, you have been trained to say absolutely nothing, but to say it in the most affable way possible, which means essentially just offering a basic compliment to whatever senator is barking at you at that moment, and then they feel great. <laughs> I mean, that's what we've learned. He's very good at that. Have you guys heard about the frozen trucker case? I saw that Al Franken got Gorsuch. Gorsuch, Gorsuch or Gorsuch? Gorsuch. Uh, I guess we're going to have to learn that he's going to be around for 40 fucking years. <laughs> this this story <laughs> is pretty incredible uh, to show that he's this guy. This is someone who's going to side with corporations at just about most of his decisions. Um, so this truck driver's brakes freeze. He pulls over, waits three hours for help. Keeps calling his employer, keeps calling everyone, I need help, I need help, it's really cold, the brakes are frozen and everything else. Uh, he starts losing feelings in his arms and legs. He then starts getting these early symptoms of hypothermia, right? And so he starts, now he's calling like emergency, like I need help, I'm stuck here, but I can't, I don't want to abandon my truck, it's my job, but like I can't feel, you know, and then finally he's, finally someone tells him like, you've got to go, you've got to run. So he unhitches the cab from the trailer and he drives away. He gets fired by his employer for unhitching the thing. Uh, so the majority in the court called the dismissal unjustified. All the different courts did. One person thought it was justified. Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> Ugh, I did read that story. It's an awful story. <laughs> it's just like... It's, a, it's also just like going out of your way to write that dissent. Like, this, right? is not the, this is not the country I live in. Can't fire a guy for refusing to freeze to death. What, what, what is America if not a place where we put the, the property inside of a truck... Above the life of a truck driver. That's the America I grew up in. It's like, I don't think Neil Gorsuch did that because he, like, you know, hates truck drivers. But he's like, well, look, the law is, the law, this is what the text of the law says. And so we must just call balls and strikes and look at the text. And you don't think about context, even though Supreme Court justices have thought about the context around cases forever. Yeah. So, and that, and forgetting about that context is exactly why uh, Obama voted against Roberts. That's right. That's exactly right. That was his expressed concern about that nomination. Which you can you can, yeah, read, you we, can we might have been wrong about that one. That guy kind of did us a solid on the Obama. And also, like, again, again, though, like, okay, we can say that that was the reason, but it was a super political vote. So let's all stop pretending. Uh, if you read his Daily Coast blog from 2005, yeah, 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 maybe yeah. I, I just the politics of all this, like, I've decided that Neil Gorsuch is just not in the mainstream. It's like just this uh, whole the whole would song. You vote, and would dance. you vote for him? No, I'd vote against because I'm a political animal. Because I'm running for president. I, I, I feel I feel personally torn on this. I, I Obviously, the good politics is to do what McConnell did, just like rinse and repeat that approach of just obstinance about everything. But it just fe- something about it feels wrong to me because I'm a weak-kneed Democrat, and that's just how I am. I started there, Tommy, and the more I like everything has played out, you know what? Schumer's whole strategy that we should not have a lifetime appointment appointment given to someone who's under federal investigation right now. He's right. I buy that logic. I, I think that that's the only, and I was thinking we were talking about this um, uh, over the past couple of days that like like these Supreme Court fights are all so rote. It's like the Democrats say he's out of the mainstream. A few of them, few of the more moderate Democrats get picked up, picked off, and vote with the Republicans to to put him on the court. Same would happen if it was if it was a, a Democratic nomination. But this is a stolen Supreme Court seat. This is Merrick Garland's seat. Merrick Garland seat. It's just, it is. It's he stolen. He was not afforded to hear him. And it's deeply unfair and it's unsolvable. But the one thing we shouldn't do is capitulate to, to Mitch McConnell's strategy. And just, we should just say no. But we should also should not do what Republicans do to their voters all the time, which is promise a victory here because Democrats can filibuster this. McConnell runs the Senate. They 
make the rules, yep. and he will get rid of the filibuster for this nomination, and Neil Gorsuch will probably sit on the Supreme Court. Yep. We should, everyone should just be aware of this. And that's why I do think it's the, that, that, that we have a bad hand, but the best way to play it is to tie it back to the investigation, because it reminds everybody about this insane situation we are, where Donald Trump is not... Donald Trump, who should not be president, is nominating someone for a seat that should not be open. Yeah, Schumer's strategy is very smart. You have to give him credit. I think uh, I think they came up to a, a pretty good rationale for why this should maybe, be slowed down. Yeah, maybe, look, the maybe idea that the, like, we're going to preserve the filibuster for the next Supreme Court justice, like Mitch McConnell's going to agree to that? He doesn't care. Something is uh, maybe even more immediate than Gorsuch, which is uh, the government will run out of money this on April 28th or 29th. I can't remember 34 the exact date. days. So you would think, since we have a president of one party and a Congress ruled by the same party, they would just be able to p- pass what's known as a continuing resolution, which means same amount of money is spent everywhere and we just keep going until we have a bigger debate. Okay. But here's the catch. The Freedom Caucus will probably want to defund Planned Parenthood in this continuing resolution. There are not 60 votes in the Senate to pass a continuing resolution that defunds Planned Parenthood because Democrats will not buy that. Probably Susan Collins wouldn't go for that or Lisa Murkowski. They've already said that Two Republicans. So they also are both. Um, what do you call it? Women. Women. They are also both women. Um, if they can't settle this, if then that means that Ryan in order to pass something in the House, will need Democratic votes. This is just a unconscionable, shamelessly partisan, base-pleasing thing they're doing, right? They, they know full well that most funds for Planned Parenthood have nothing to do with abortions. There's a very principled mm-hmm. pro-life position out there that one can take and that I fully respect. This is not that. This is unconscionable. It's sexist. It should not happen. Well, the, 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 actually, a point that... um. Uh, I've heard Cory Booker make, which is a good one. We talk about it as defunding Planned Parenthood, but actually we're falling into their trap. It's not defunding Planned Parenthood or funding Planned Parenthood. It's allowing Planned Parenthood to be reimbursed like any other healthcare organization. So I think mm-hmm. like that's the important thing to come back to, that like it's just treating them like any other provider and they are just a, an important healthcare provider. It's not that complicated. That's so, it. That's yeah. the point I want to make right. about that. So what does Donald Trump do here? Does he he uh, makes the deal, you know. He brings people together, and he negotiates, and then he says, uh, "Hey, man." He says uh, he comes up to the table. He goes, "Here's how you do it." You walk in the room, and you say, "I'm not for this," and you walk out of the room, and that's how you start it. And then you come back in. And then Steve Bannon makes a list. I mean, the, the thing, like the there's something uh, that makes me feel a little bit back to the petty grievances part of the talk. Like it is nice to see all these lazy criticisms of Obama not playing golf with people or inviting them to barbecues or coming on Air Force One are proven to be as silly as we all knew they were at the time, which is just that Congress doesn't work that way. They have real reasons that they vote for or against things that have a lot to do with politics and not a lot to do and with how nice Barack Obama was to you. But it makes me fearful for Trump's options here. <laughs> Donald and Trump and is president for one month and the last thing he said for this bill is like, I'm not talking to another fucking member of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> they are nobody. That's why they're in Congress. If they were the kind of people people wanted to talk to, they wouldn't have to fill the hole in their hearts with campaigns. Well, and let's give the Trump. I mean, because it was silly when they said this about Obama, and it's silly now. All the things that says Donald Trump needs to take them out on the golf course more, and like hang out with Mark Meadows more, and be buddy buddy with Paul Ryan. This is all. This is right. bullshit. Washington report. This is like the same crap that we went through. Obama and, it's all and John silly. Boehner liked each other. <laughs> Actually, a lot. Here's here's our advice. Think about the bigger maybe, pol- maybe too much. Maybe too much. <laughs> Love that dare not speak its name. You know. <laughs> Think about the larger policy dynamics. Think about the larger political dynamics. That's what that's what does things. Not these little stupid stories about people playing golf together. Now that being said. I do think that there has been damage done 
when we went from a time in which members of Congress were in D.C. for most of the year to they're here for three days and then they race home. Like, I do think that oh, there's consequences yeah, to that. No, but no. that didn't happen between 2008 and today. That happened in, like, the 80s. And no, I know. I, it's, it's, everything's not about Obama, Tommy. Look, David. Well, for me, it is. <laughs> Look, David Gergen. You yeah, I'm just pushing point. back on your uh, silly no, straw man. I, I just think... <laughs> Look, uh, in fact, I... No, but... but I, uh, Tip O'Neill um, and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan used to go get a beer. It was super good. Ron Fournier over here. <laughs> Quoting Pundit Levitt. A pox on both their houses. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the government shut. I don't know what ha- I mean. I think Ryan has to get. Will have either have to tell the Freedom Caucus live to fight another day on this, or get Democratic votes for a continuing resolution. Which I don't know. The Democrats will go for that. I, I don't think. I mean, you have Pelosi in the New York Times today saying that we're essentially we're emboldened. We see no reason to work with this president. And like back back to like the basics of being president in terms of relationship building and, and management of Congress. Trump has certainly done the bare minimum amount of work with Republicans. He has done nothing to try to reach out to Democrats. Not one thing. Period. You, you don't think calling Chuck Schumer fake tier Schumer is uh, reaching out to Democrats? You don't think, you yeah. think calling Nancy Pelosi a loser on Friday no, oh, is yeah, the way right. to reach out to Democrats? Blaming them for a bill that his own party openly tanked. You don't think that uh, calling their favorite president a um, an imposter president because he was born in Kenya and then accusing him of wiretapping your phones, you don't think that's reaching out to Democrats? <laughs> not, the, not the olive branch we were hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's a, that was, by the way, we, we, we moved past this pretty fast, but it's actually worth remembering that Donald Trump in his Twitter has has already blamed everyone. He blamed Democrats, the Freedom Caucus, Paul Ryan. He's just running down his list. Yeah, no, it's like Olive Branch. He's going to reach out to them. His, yeah. The whole thing about D- Donald Trump's going to reach out to Democrats is said as a threat to the Freedom Caucus. It's not said as a genuine, you know, it's like, hey, Freedom Caucus, if you keep fucking with us, we're going to ask some Democrats for help. Oh, okay, good luck doing that. And by the way, who wants to be that backup prom date? <laughs> like, yeah, the, the insane person I asked to the prom said no. And so you, the person I obviously don't like and made fun of in homeroom all year, uh, will you go to the prom with me? Yep. No, we will not go to the prom with you, Donald Trump. <laughs> to, to your point about how Donald Trump has blamed everyone at Twitter, it's also funny. Like, every time you pick up the New York Times and you read a story by Maggie Haberman that has like sources quoted to Trump in the story, it's Donald Trump who's the source <laughs> close to Trump, just destroying his entire team, his staff, his son-in-law, the Freedom Caucus, everybody. I mean, he is. it, it is a blitzkrieg of blame. Let's, ew, I like a that. blitzkrieg of blame. Ooh, we got a title. That's like a column. Uh, <laughs> we got a title. I don't Thumbs like up. the idea that we're going to start doing the titles during and like be really proud of ourselves. Yeah, well, because you didn't say it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be 100%. Um, all right, let's go to the next uh, thing on the agenda because we haven't solved the shutdown and we haven't solved the Gorsuch thing. Well, but let, the other big one that they're all saying is, okay, we couldn't get health care done. We're moving on to tax reform. We've all wanted tax reform anyway. Even during the health care fight, Trump was like, I just got to get this health care thing out of the way so I can go to tax well, reform. Well, I mean, it's funny. The health... <laughs> The healthcare part of the healthcare bill was the part that they couldn't agree upon. The part they love is the tax cuts for the rich. But so he, now they're like, what if we just did a bill that's all that? So here's, I'm just going to set up a quick context and we can talk about it. Here's the issue with tax reform now. Um, they want to pass tax reform through a reconciliation bill. That was the same device they wanted to use for Obamacare repeal, which means they would only need 50 votes in the Senate, 51 votes in the Senate instead of the 60, right? In order to do that, the tax reform cannot increase the deficit. And so that means that they would have to get find spending cuts or tax increases other place. Obamacare, cutting Obamacare was going to be their spending cuts, right? They were going to try to lower some of the deficit. with. They can't do that now. So now they want to have a trillion dollars in tax cuts that they have to come up with money to pay for, which means that they have to increase taxes on some other people or they have to find even more spending cuts which I don't think that they can well, do. And, and just as like just so they are going to have a real problem doing tax reform. And we should actually step back and say like what is tax reform in, in, right. in what is tax reform generally and what is tax reform to them. So 
The tax code is super complicated. It's filled with a bunch of junk. It means that you could ostensibly, without increasing the deficit, lower all the rates while getting rid of a bunch of deductions and things that kind of distort the market Very and distort the economy. Very popular like deductions. Like your mortgage deduction. Well, well, right. So there are deductions. There's healthcare deductions. There's mortgage deductions. Um, then there's also the fun private jet deductions and all those things that are in there as well. And then also the way that we kind of reward investors over workers and all that stuff. And so there is a there is a kind of a version of bipartisan tax reform that would be popular and like a good thing to do, which would be without increasing the deficit, lowering tax rates while getting rid of uh, getting rid of a bunch of tax policies that kind of uh, spend money through giving people tax breaks. But that's not what they want to do. What they want to do is cut taxes for rich people kind of give people a little taste of a tax cut for the middle class and the poor while drastically reducing spending to pay for it. It's just these guys are so outwardly ideologically inconsistent. The whole idea behind the Tea Party rallies initially was that debt was a huge deal, that we weren't paying enough attention, that we needed to stop this runaway spending. But then you have Mark Meadows, who is the chair of the Freedom Caucus, said he's cool if tax tax cuts are not offset by spending or new revenue streams, which will absolutely lead to the deficit be increased unless you still believe in supply-side economics and the Laffer curve and all the the things that have been discarded by history. So the one idea they have to raise tax revenue with this tax cut, so they want to have a giant tax cut for corporations. They want to bring the corporate tax rate down 20%. Donald Trump says 15%, which is sort of crazy. But in order to make up the money, they want the... um, Bannon and Paul Ryan have an idea for a border tax, which is a tax on imports, right. which means that, um, and then they would lower taxes on exports. Ideally, this would you know make companies sort of hire people and make goods in America, right? The problem with that is, if you start taxing imports in this country, it is going to raise prices for consumers who are buying goods at places like Walmart and everywhere else. Yep. And by it. the way, other countries will see this and be like, okay, now we'll tax your stuff. And that's how you get a trade war. And then World War One's back. And, this and is we another, all love that. Who, this is another, who doesn't want to go back to that? Not this guy. That's another thing that Paul Ryan has seemingly dreamed about since he was hanging out by the keg with Rich Riley. I, I just don't like, I, I don't get the things that he is passionate about. Why are you passionate uh, about a border adjustment tax? How is that your thing? Because uh, it's a way to give rich people more money. <laughs> that's uh, that's what it goes. Yeah, the border adjustment tax? They were in that long. Well, no, in, because not really, it's, it's a Trojan horse for that because it allows you to cut the corporate rate and cut individual rates for wealthy people, which is what he wants to do. But that's also, you know, this terrible. was, in, you know, in that there's this long uh, uh, Robert Draper piece, and in it, it was one of the one of the one of the little fun conversations between Ben and Ryan is like they bonded over the fact that they both want to get rid of the estate tax. Uh, yes, right. it's like that uh, story, man. Oh my god, that's, well, that's like the worst it, dinner ever. That's your point, Tommy. That's what he really wants, and the border and the and the border tax is just one. Way to raise the money to do the other. Uh, yeah, stuff. I well, guess I don't know that, but it's just another thing he's seemingly been dreaming about for a decade. And it's just a very strange. Well, it's a place where there's this over right. Like this is this. It is there is a theory that Bannon has that like this economic nationalism, which is you create a bunch of incentives to create jobs in the U.S. And one of the ways you do that is by taxing things that come in. I mean, it's a dangerous game to play, but there is a theory behind it. Um, getting rid of the estate taxes is lunacy. It's unconscionable. So tax reform is going to be tricky. They might. I mean, they could end up with just a smaller tax cut for, you know, the wealthy, maybe some middle class and some companies and maybe not pay for. I I don't know. They can't increase the deficit. So they they close some loopholes. They do something smaller. Yeah, that's the key. It has to be a scaled down cut. Significantly. Seems to me that's where we're headed. Um, Anything they do on trade is going to be tough because you need two-thirds of both houses to, to redo a trade agreement. That's going to be tough for them. Uh, infrastructure, they want the big infrastructure bill. If the only way to get Democratic votes is to do real spending, which the Freedom Caucus and the Republicans are not going to want, it's tough. 
Yeah, it turns out uh, a rhetorical president wasn't the right fit for these times. Also, these are very complicated matters. Also, let's just enjoy our, you know, bicameral legislature and three branches of government in the Constitution protecting us from a demagogue in the White House. <laughs> Thank you, founders. You were a bunch of uh, slave owners, but you got a couple things right. I mean, moral of the story here is that Donald Trump's election did not fix or even begin to fix the deep, deep problems within the Republican Party, right? Which is that they have a large wing of their party that has been fueled by Steve Bannon's Breitbart and Fox and all the rest with a bunch of lies about how government's evil and all this kind of stuff. And so these people are, there's a big part of that party that is very extreme that is not going to be happy unless there is no government spending, all tax cuts, no social programs whatsoever. And Paul Ryan cannot govern the House unless he pleases those people. And the only other way to do that is to go with democratic votes and to go with democratic votes that is a much more liberal agenda that paul ryan is comfortable with yeah it's actually that's, sort of, that's the he's stuck we're still stuck in that dynamic it's 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 interesting right that donald trump's election was a culmination of a lot of forces within the republican party but he is different than what's governing the kind of extremism you see in the house the, the house freedom caucus and donald trump are different kinds of extremes and, and and where they don't overlap is where you have this kind of a problem because donald trump doesn't care as much. I mean, Donald Trump isn't an ideologue on government spending and taxes and, and regulation. He's he's an ideologue on immigration and some of the more nationalist issues. The House Freedom Caucus has a different set of a different set of beliefs. Um, what's interesting to me though is is there is a world in which Donald Trump could break this this logjam that we have, but for some strange reason he's governing he's governing according to Paul Ryan's plan. And Paul Ryan's plan doesn't work. It's deeply unpopular. There isn't a coalition behind it, and so he's kind of stuck. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. Like, one, getting your arms around what the Freedom Caucus types want is very difficult from afar and apparently even for him. Because you, you in that Draper piece, I think it was either Raul Labrador or Mark Meadows who was like, boy, then you see Ivanka come out for, for paid family leave and you think, that's not what my party stands for. <laughs> like, Dude, what does your party stand for? You don't want families to be able to be together and have time off? I mean, it, it's it's... It's bizarre. And so, yes, you're right that he's governing but, by Paul Ryan, but he's also governing by Steve Bannon. But that's a great example, though, Tommy. Any... You shouldn't move on past that. That's a great example. I don't Thank think he was good at no. you just interrupted him. Well, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, think? like, the paid family leave, like, you're, that's, they don't believe in paid family leave because they don't believe that that's the role of government to kind exactly. of enforce this kind of a president. Exactly. The Trump White House does. I, that's a sincere belief on the part of the House Freedom Caucus that the government has no business dictating to companies uh, when people have to have time off. That's a reasonable position to take. I don't think it's the right one, but it's a reasonable uh, consistent position with what they believe. It just doesn't work with what this White House wants, right? Like, that's the divide. Like, Donald Trump is not a free marketeer. It's just not who he is. It doesn't work with what the White House wants, and it doesn't work with what people want, right. especially the people who voted for Trump. This was the case on health care. This is the right. case on that. Or any of the social platforms they put forward that put government very much into your life at all times. I mean, just this, this Ryan agenda that government has no place in people's lives, you're right, is a completely legitimate argument to have. It's just not what they've run on. It's not what Donald Trump ran on. And it's not what most of the coalition of the Republican Party wants or the part the coalition of the Democratic Party. This is the fundamental challenge that they're all facing. And we are and lucky. All, yeah. We are lucky as Democrats that Donald Trump is not governing according to this sort of the 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 nationalist economically populist agenda that he promised but because I, don't know I think if he has that the would... votes he would have the votes even <clears throat> if he wanted to that's the question well it's a funny thing it's actually he would need it, democratic votes for that it reminds me of, of George W Bush a little bit because um, in this sense which is George W Bush was constantly shocked by his inability to kind of bring people together once he was governing because he never accepted how harshly and how viciously he ran as a candidate 
And over and over again, you know, Donald Trump is going to bump into this, which is Donald Trump isn't going to get a chance to bring Democrats together because, as we've talked about, he's a birther. He campaigned as a racist demagogue. There's no room for him to bring people together to govern for because because the actual agenda that Steve Bannon wants could peel Democrats off. It absolutely could. But it's just not possible because of the kind of person he is and the kind of campaign he ran. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. On the pod today, we have with us friend of the pod, Johannes Abraham. You are the director of the Office of Public Engagement in the Obama White House. Deputy National Political Director in 2012, and just a longtime organizer. How's it going, man? Things are good. Things are good. Is it, uh, is it weird that I got dressed up for this? <laughs> no, not at all. Everyone you mean love it didn't. <laughs> Most, these I'm are my work jeans. Suit in my room right now. Most of our guests wear a suit and tie. Uh, Johannes, it's Tommy. Good to, good to hear your voice, man. So hey, man. We, we started working together in 2007 in Iowa. Um, back then, nobody thought Obama had a chance in hell of winning the state. It was improbable as it gets. No one thought an African-American could could come out of a state that was almost majority, vast majority white. Uh, but we won because of his message, because of some grassroots organizing by field organizers like you and our volunteers. What are the lessons about what a good organization looks like and how you harness grassroots energy from that experience? Uh, other than it's always good to run against Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I think there's a couple things. I, you know, the one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is actually what we saw um, after Iowa. When we started going, you know, state to state and, uh, you know, the, the primary became protracted in a way we weren't really anticipating, and we'd show up in these states where we didn't have staff at all. And, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, staff would show up for the Feb 5th or, or other primaries. And there was, there was these amazing, truly grassroots uh, independently organized, independently operated, um, sort of, you know, groups of, of really committed activists, many of whom were not, uh, longtime democratic volunteers, but, um, who were inspired by what the president had to say. And most importantly, and this is, this is the big takeaway that I've taken from watching that, you know, they just sort of showed up and it sounds simple, but, you know, I remember showing up in Virginia for the, the primary, which is February 12th. And, you know, these guys had been canvassed before we had a single staffer on the ground to provide any sort of direction. They had been canvassing for months. They'd been going, doing voter registration for months. They had been, you know, at, at flea markets and at, at uh, you know, um, other community gatherings for months uh, in support of President Obama. And I think what, um, you know, we did some things as a campaign to provide tools for them, like mybarackobama.com, et cetera. But 
the truth of the matter is um, they didn't wait for instruction. They, uh, you know, rallied and organized locally and, um, you know, sort of put their shoulder behind the wheel and, you know, didn't wait for, there's sort of this fallacy of a lot of, uh, our, our, our campaign at the end and, and certainly in, in states where we had a lot of uh, time to organize did have a top-down element, but the overall movement around the country was, was truly bottom-up and not in sort of a, a, a corny way, in a really substantive uh, and real way. And I think one of the lessons for this moment both for folks who want to get involved and for people who want to understand what's going on is, um, you know, the best way to get involved is just to show up. And, you know, there's, there's a million different inlets and a million different ways to, uh, uh, if there's something you care about to do so, but there's not, there's not really a, a just add water solution to a grassroots movement. Um, that was to me the coolest thing about the, the primary efforts. I mean, what we did in Iowa was phenomenal and one of the best teams I've ever been a part of, but to show up in a place where there was no paid staff, but they had, you know, really committed and organized and, um, uh, you know, meticulously run organizations. That, that's what a movement's about. Do you think that um, just stopping Trump is enough to get people to show up in 2018 and 2020? Do you think, you know, how much of a, how much of a positive agenda do Democrats need? How, much, how, how important is, is it to have candidates that are really inspiring? Or do you think in a situation like this, maybe the antipathy to Trump and his agenda is enough to sort of build that movement? You know, I think there's definitely, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there's a simplicity to opposition that uh, makes it easier for disparate parts of, you know, a broader movement to, to kind of be on the same Song sheet, and I think we saw this with the the recent ACA um, fight, which isn't over uh, by any stretch. But the recent uh, chapter in the ACA fight, you know, I, I think from talking to friends who were on the ground in in states where there was a lot of activity, you didn't see, you know, any of the you know establishment versus newcomer, left versus center, you know, Bernie versus Hillary dynamic play itself out. There was there was sort of um, unity in in purpose. So there's definitely a simplicity that that comes with opposition. You know, I think what, this is my bet, I think what we're going to see is, you know, we saw, I think we've, we've already seen this in the context of the immigration debate, we've seen it in the context of the healthcare debate, is that I think opposition to Trump in the first instance is going to breed a new generation of people who understand uh, the importance of, of specific um, uh, policies and or sort of broad policy buckets in a way that is that is more sustainable than, um, and I you know I would argue more is healthier for the progressive movement than uh, waiting for a charismatic candidate or two or three to um, uh, to, to take the handoff from uh, our last president. And so I'm I'm really excited because I think that what you know one of the things to come out of you know I, I bet is going to come out of this ACA fight is you've got an entire generation of of folks who become active not only in in opposition to Trump but maybe that was the entry point, but uh, you know, as they look back on on Friday's um, moment, I think that they're you know they're they're more invested in the actual underlying policy, and that that is sustainable because it's not specific to you know personality on either side of the debate. So we've seen this kind of surge in activism, especially around things like ACA, and then you know in LA we you know LA had hundreds of thousands of people come out to vote, and then uh, hundreds of thousands of people to come out to march, and then one of the lowest election turnouts we've ever had. How do you? make that kind of energy sustainable when there isn't look i mean the the aca fight is pretty incredible in that it was a specific battle to save something really positive for lots of people that they were afraid to lose what do you do when it's not as clear when it's not as stark yeah um well the the, the first thing is 
and, and you know, this is this is hard to to pull off logistically, not to go into uh, to to dive into um, tactics, but go one into of the it. Things that, we like tactics well, here. We like tactics. <laughs> We're not afraid of tactics. <laughs> We're also trying to keep it loose, you know. <laughs> Sorry, let me just take off my tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you Don't really sound like you're wearing a suit, um, and we're really going for more of a laid-back, maybe a robe. Do you have a robe? <laughs> I'm sweating through my vest, guys. <laughs> it's a yeah. three-piece suit. <laughs> it's also one I've owned since college, so it's uh, cool, cool. a little snug. Um, you know, the the um, it's been great. It's been great to see the the sort of numbers and the you know the sort of the sheer mass. And there's going to be some natural attrition there. Um, over time that I don't think is, is going to be illustrative of a, you know, a concerning waning of enthusiasm. There's just going to be natural attrition. I think is the, the, his presidency continues and there's, you know, every week something new to, to organize around. I think if groups are, uh, and I have, you know, every indication is that they, they have been, and they're, they're going to continue to be smart about this. You know, you, you've got one of the best ways and it sounds simple, but one of the best ways to try to capture that enthusiasm is to actually, be smart about your data and be smart about trying to capture as much of, you know, as many of the people that show up to one of those things. And it's hard when it's, you know, tens of thousands at a given March, but try to capture as much data as you can as possible, because ultimately, you know, a good organization or a good um, organizer would look at that data as, as invaluable because those are folks that you can follow up with. You can tailor your, you know, your ass to them over time. But, um, you know, Tommy, you, you bring up Iowa. I mean, one of the things that was drilled into us, and, uh, from day one, and you know, it's drilled into any good organizer is that an event didn't happen if you didn't capture people's names, addresses, right. phone numbers, and emails. And um, if, if you, you know, this is probably something worthwhile for the listeners. If you show up to an event or a rally uh, that's you know, a local organization or even a national one uh, puts on, and they're not uh, badgering you to sign a sign-in sheet, you're probably a sign that it's not a particularly well-run uh, grassroots effort because. Um, yeah, that's the lifeblood of, of keeping folks engaged is being able to communicate with them on a you know either individual or mass basis. So, not to give a again, sorry, I'm going to overuse the word tactics. Not to give a tactical answer to you know I think what's a big picture problem, but um, you know, that's where that's if if I was helping to organize a rally at any point, that would be the very first thing I would make sure to do. I'd rather have half the people there and every single one of them captured. Yeah, the happiest I ever saw you guys was the day after the Oprah uh, event where you oh were just God. counting supporter cards. Cool. It was like Scrooge McDuck swimming in money. Um, <laughs> y- you did a lot of uh, OPE work. You, you did a lot of engagement to business groups and others. I read a whole bunch of stories about Jared Kushner's new SWAT team today where he's bringing in fresh new business thinking to Washington with people like Tim Cook and Mark Benioff. Did that sound particularly new to you? Is that an idea you guys might have tried at one time? <laughs> well, well, look, the... <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think a couple things. One, um, we we you know tried and tried successfully a, a, a bunch of times to bring in private sector voices. You know, if you look at the makeup of the president's jobs council when we first came in and we're we're facing um, you know an economic meltdown, uh, you know those by and large were were big private sector names um, who offered a lot of expertise and a lot of guidance as we were you know putting together our uh, strategies for dealing with with that mess. Plus pictures. Um, you know, Plus pictures. Don't forget the pictures we took of the jobs council, which was very real, very real council. We don't. I don't. Sorry. Go on. Jobs council. Look, the, the, the short answer is that this is. Look, I think it is an admirable um, endeavor to try to. Uh, you know, anytime you try to bring in outside thinking to government, I think it's an admirable endeavor. I, I, 
it's something that we did a lot. It's something we did, you know, to some good effect. We did a regulatory review with a lot of private sector folks at the table. Um, but, you know, I suspect this is, this is uh, a little bit more about a headline than a, a substantive um, a substantive reimagining of how government works. And I think if we're, you know, if we're seeing anything, if, well, there's a lot of lessons to take out of the past few weeks and months. But, um, you know, a lot of those perspectives are not interchangeable. I think that it was, I loved when the president used to say at the end of his term, you know, uh, pointing to the difference between being president and being CEO as, you know, imagine if you had a board, half of which wanted you to fail. Uh, you had a you know an employee base you know of which ten percent were actually at will employees. It's a totally different endeavor. So I imagine this is more about a one time headline than it's not going to. I doubt it. Well, I'd be but, highly surprised if it led to any sort of substantive change in the the functioning of their their administration. Probably good because Jared's probably got to get back to uh, finishing up Middle East peace. That's kind of <laughs> two big two big tickets, yeah. you know, <laughs> and perfecting the mogul course. <laughs> right. right. Plus, yeah, he's got I mean, a scheme to get in. Shoot, shoot, shoot. You know. Um, <laughs> Foreign policy problem of, of uh, multiple lifetimes and restructuring the entirety of the U.S. government's a pretty big portfolio. Pretty easy. Nobody. Well, he 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 did uh, he did briefly work in real estate, so I think that that's uh, an experience he can use and bring to bear. So we we get a we get asked a lot by people, you know, what can I do to get involved? Uh, you know, I'm not in a red state. I'm not in a swing district. Uh, and pretty much our answer is like, show up at a rally or go to a town hall. Are there what other things can people act? Concrete steps can people take to be involved who maybe haven't been in politics before, but they're interested now and they want to help. What would you suggest? So let me let me. This kind of ties back to my um, my observation that I, I mentioned earlier about when we were going state to state on the Obama campaign during the primary. What we saw in terms of folks just showing up. You know, there's a there's a lot of talk, uh, good talk, and I think accurate um, introspection in the party right now about you know the importance of winning at the state and local level um, down ballot. And there's a lot of uh, you know there, there's sort of this what I think is going to be a really healthy natural selection of that's a really conservative thing to say, but really healthy natural selection of <laughs> um, groups that are emerging to you know try to get people plugged into running for office, et cetera. But the the truth is. You know, it's as simple as showing up to almost, you know, anybody listening has a, you know, probably 95% has a, a functioning or semi-functioning county Democratic Party, the core goal of which is to win at the state and local level and to field candidates for office at the local level primarily. And you might not be in a swing congressional district, but it's almost, you know, there, there's almost nowhere in the country that has, you know, at the county level, you know, um, you know across the board, uh, blue uh, elected officials. And I would say, look, if, if you're looking for a hyper-specific, tangible thing to do, I'd show up to your county Democratic Party, I'd Google it, and I'd show up, and there's almost invariably an appetite for committed, free, volunteer labor uh, in terms of helping to identify candidates, supporting those candidates, providing, you know, whatever your talents or expertise are uh, in service of the candidates that are running locally. And look, if you find, and this is what some of our volunteers found in 08, if you find that your county Democratic Party is not run by you know a, a group or somebody that, that you see eye to eye with, or you find that uh, you know they're not a great entry point. Then then you know you can try to find another inlet. You can uh, run for a seat on that that county party and shape it in the way that you want it to do. But you know from a, from a hyper specific political perspective, it has nothing to do with the DNC and all the debates around the DNC. It has nothing to do with even you know state parties. I would literally Google your county or city party and show up to their next. That was actually, put you to work. The very first thing I ever did in politics was intern at the county uh, Democratic office in Nassau County. And the other thing that happens when you show up at a local county office is you realize, like, 
you you know show up sober they make you foreman you know <laughs> you can you can do a lot of good there <laughs> love it took over in no time yeah running that place <laughs> uh johannes thank you so much for joining us we appreciate you and we'll talk to you soon thanks guys take care thanks buddy thanks take care. Bye. that's our show for today thank you to johannes abraham for joining us and uh we'll see you again soon what a week what a week it's only monday <laughs> bye guys bye The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.